Today's reading is taken from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 13. That can be found on page 1,152 of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. I expect most people will be familiar with this as a, as a very popular wedding um, scripture. I know that I had it at my wedding. Love is indispensable, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, uh, hope you're doing well this morning. It's great to be together. Now listen, I've just uh, stepped out for a moment. I wanted to make sure that we had kind of passed on the news that the Hanburys had their little bubby. Did you hear that news? Fantastic news. Micah David Hanbury, a nine pounder. Uh, I think in, that's in the old language. I think in the new language that just means big, doesn't it? <laughs> big and healthy. So it's great, great news. Um, I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get underway with this fantastic passage. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for um, the birth of Micah David. and So exciting. And I thank you for bringing him into the world safely. Thank you for looking after Pip in the process. Pray you continue to be with all the pregnant mums uh, in our congregation, that you keep them safe. We do pray for this young lad, that uh, Pip and Dave would be able to raise him in knowledge and fear and love of the Lord, and that he would grow up to claim Jesus as his own Saviour and Lord as well. And as uh, we come to this passage, 1 Corinthians, we want to be better lovers So move us through these words to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever I get gloomy about the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion makes out that we live in a world of hatred and greed, but I don't see that. It seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters... Husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, none of the phone calls from people on board were messages of revenge or hatred. They were all messages of love. And if you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling that love actually is all around us. That's what Hugh Grant's character said at the start of the romantic comedy, Love Actually. Uh, You can tell it's a romantic comedy, by the way, 
not just because Hugh Grant is farcical in his role as the Prime Minister of Great Britain. You can tell it's comedy because if you've ever been to Heathrow Airport, what first comes to mind is not love, it's queues, isn't it? If you go to Heathrow, I've got a sneaky feeling that queues actually are all around us, um, weaving, snaking, winding all the way out the front door. Now, I've uh, used that introduction for a number of weddings that I've done. Um, and when we come to 1 Corinthians, as Sarah rightly said, we might first think of it as a wedding passage, it really is a, a go-to wedding passage, which is unreal. It's great. It really is. Um, but as we know, it's firstly a passage that's written to churches, uh, not marrying couples. And it's got to have something to do with spiritual gifts and how we do and how we be church together because it's right in the middle of this section, chapters 11 to 14, which is all about that topic. And in actual fact, it sits smack bang between two chapters, 12 and 14, that are all about spiritual gifts, what they are, how we use them together. Now, as it turns out, love actually is what we all want as human beings. It's what we want for ourselves. It's what we want for our church. And when it comes to the idea of love, don't you reckon that romantic comedies, they're not even a shadow upon the majesty and the beauty and the profundity of 1 Corinthians 13 that we just heard read to us. You know, preparing, you just sort of wonder whether we really should just read it twice and then just leave it at that. And you kind of think, surely getting up and saying anything about it is going to take something away. But you know, I, I only work one day a week, and uh, <laughs> I better at least work that day. So we're going to see from uh, 1 Corinthians 13, this masterpiece from the Apostle Paul, his great hymn to love, that being loving is better than being gifted, that love is not only an emotion, but also an action, and that love prevails into eternity. And actually, just before we get to that, before we get to the verses, just let's think about this word love. Uh, the word used here in the New Testament, agape, love, wasn't previously in common use. I mean, get this, the love of God expressed in the gift of his son, it was so striking, it was so different, it was so other, that they needed a new word for it. And so they came up with agape, love. A love based on the character and the nature of the lover not on the worthiness of the recipient. Now, that's what we're talking about today. And uh, firstly for today, being loving is better than being gifted. And you can see that from your Bibles, which I hope you have open in front of you there, uh, in verse 31a, uh, 31b, sorry, where the Apostle Paul says, and now I will show you the most excellent way, the way of love. But you can also see it from verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13, that being loving is better than being gifted. So read along with me from verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And on it goes. And what he's saying there is that, that loving, being loving is more important than being gifted and talented. I might speak in the tongues of angels, one of those spiritual gifts that Paul mentioned in chapter 12 that we're going to be saying a little bit more about next week. I might also speak in the tongues of men or the languages of men with great human eloquence and rhetoric. But speaking gifts, tongues of men and angels without love, sound like a, a resounding gong or a noisy cymbal. 
of no benefit to people, just a harsh sound. And you think about those two uh, instruments, I guess, the gong and the cymbal, and they've, they've got noise, but no melody, no kind of lightness to the ear. And they really would have been familiar sounds to the Corinthian Christians, because in the ancient world, they used gongs and cymbals as a way to drive out evil spirits, uh, or alternatively, as a way to kind of summons whichever local deity they worshipped. It was kind of their way of waking up their God. I think if you've got to wake your God up, there's something wrong, isn't there? Uh, not at all what the Corinthian Christians would have thought about their speaking gifts. What do you mean, our speaking? Uh, noisy, cl- clanging symbols like the other guys use? But without love, they are. Which means that anyone who would claim to speak God's words for our benefit needs to make sure that their speech is directed towards the encouragement of others, not the promotion of themselves. Or what about the gift of uh, prophecy and knowledge, uh, verse 2, or even that special gift of faith. I mean, he's not talking about the common gift that all of us have if we trust in the, the Lord Jesus Christ, but that extra measure that just believes God will do extraordinary things. Well, you can even move a mountain says 1 Corinthians, and you're nothing if you don't do it with and out of love. What we know by human reason, what we know by God's revelation amounts to nothing. Not even miraculous faith counts without love. Not even giving all your possessions to the poor. And and he's got in mind the idea of that single grand sweeping gesture of generosity to the point of your own bankruptcy. Not even giving your body over to hardship, which could mean selling yourself into slavery and giving the proceeds to the poor. Uh, In other translations, it sometimes reads, even if I surrender my body to the flames, none of it is of any gain if it's done without love or not from love. Now, don't you find it so sobering to think that it is possible to bankrupt yourself for the sake of the poor? Don't you find it sobering to think, You can sacrifice your own body to death and gain nothing. Well, you can. If you do that out of pride or out of duty or out of idealism or hoping for recognition rather than out of and with love. Very sobering, isn't it? Manly people are uh, talented people. And um, influential people, smart people. And uh, Bruce keeps telling me this, right? It's, it's lovely listening to the way he talks about us, if I can include myself in the us. Uh, he's proud and warm and enthusiastic and often reminds me that smart people, manly people. And to be honest with you, I don't need reminding. It's kind of obvious that people of capacity and capability, but gifts, spiritual and otherwise, talents, Influence, intelligence, capacity, capability, nothing without love. And so wonderful with it. Really is worth remembering that our gifts are not our own. They're not for us. They're for others. And if we use them without love for others, they are, that is our gifts, and we are, that is ourselves, nothing. Being loving is more important than being gifted. First thing for today. 
Second thing for today is that love is action directed in the service and might even be the long, long service of other people. It's, it's not just an emotion. It's not just an affection. It's an attitude that moves into action for others. And, and this idea that love is more than emotions, uh, not less than, but more than emotions, is one of the reasons why I think 1 Corinthians 13 is a perfect passage to preach at weddings. Because weddings, I mean, they're, they're just a moment that's dripping in emotion, aren't they? I mean, it's not difficult to love your spouse as a newlywed on your wedding day. They look amazing. But the wedding, it's, it's a bit like a pop song, isn't it? You know, it kind of captures the emotional high of falling in love for that single moment. And, you know, the affections that are a part of the picture. But the thing with pop songs is that everything's got to rhyme and they're over in four minutes. And then you're thinking, what next? What next? Well, then any rush of blood gives way to the sweat of service, doesn't it? In marriages, that's true, sure, but also in churches. And that's the second thing we learn from the passage today. Love is action directed in the long service of the other. Love is patient and kind. You see, you don't hear pop songs about patience and kindness, do you? Uh, It doesn't envy or boast. It isn't proud. And here you can really sense the Apostle Paul is, is going beyond thinking just about spiritual gifts and their use, and he's thinking about our interactions with one another generally. And you might not naturally think of those things like patience and kindness and humility as actions. You might think of them as virtues, but they only become virtuous when they... How did that work? I've got spirit fists. Um, (laughs) They only become virtuous when they interact with people, when they kind of hit hard up against people. Powerful. There was once this guy, he was a little lonely, and I thought I'd, I should get myself a pet, and so he decided it would be good to get a pet, and he trundled off to the pet store, and he worked out that the best pet for him would be a centipede. So he paid for the centipede, and he took it home, and that night he was looking at the centipede in this little box there, and he said to it, he said, let's go out for dinner, you and me. It's not a true story, by the way, Okay. Anyway, the centipede didn't respond, so a few minutes later, the guy comes back to the box and he says, did you hear me? I said, let's go out for dinner. No immediate response, so he walks away again, disgruntled, a little agitated actually, thinking maybe this wasn't the best pet for me after all. So he comes back a few minutes later, puts his face really close to the box, and he said, I said, let's go out for dinner and the centipede looks up and says chill out man I heard you the first time just putting on my shoes (laughs) Uh, patience right it's a virtue but it only becomes a virtue when you have to wait for someone isn't that right and all the virtues here well they need to be put into action for them to be virtuous I do wonder whether in our busy lives we just have the space to wait for people. I mean, in life in general, sure. But in the Christian life in particular, we've got the space to wait for them to where we really love them to be, to be mature or maturing as disciples of Jesus or to even want to be maturing and growing as disciples. Man, as a, as a, like a pastor, I, I sense the gravity, the grave danger in giving up, of uh, being overwhelmed, of being hard-heartedly or half-hearted about it all, just refusing to grow. And that's got to be a right thing. 
Because if I'm blasé about Christian development, I'm doing a great disservice to you and me and to God, but I can get impatient with that. And you might get impatient as well with your Christian friends or members of your small group or your family members or even with yourself. And I wonder if sometimes we just need to give folks the time to kind of put on their spiritual shoes. Moving on uh, to verse 5, uh, verse 5 and 7, I think they kind of have a real pertinence to newlyweds. Love is not rude, does not dishonour others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Verse 7, have a look in your Bibles there, love always protects, always hopes, always perseveres. But man, it's got special pertinence to us as church, especially as we do church together over years that might even turn into decades. Very easy in human relationships, isn't it, to keep a record of wrongs, don't you think? when you've had that bruising encounter or maybe just an awkward mishap with someone else in life or in church life, I mean, you just kind of file it away subconsciously. Maybe your brain is thinking, well, that could be useful fodder for a grudge. Uh, Maybe it just means you extend a little less grace to them than you do to your other friends. Like when you relate to your siblings as adults, any sign of conflict, it takes you right back to when your brother bit you when you're eight years old. You just kind of give them less buffer than you do with your other friends. You say, he's always been like that. Just the way he is. She always does that. Just the way she is. We can be experts, can't we, at keeping a record of wrongs, but love keeps no record of wrongs. I had coffee with an old uh, friend last week, a uh, colleague. Uh, I've always been impressed by the way that he speaks about people in his church, even folks that I know he's found difficult because he never trashes them. I would go so far as saying that he protects their reputation in preference of insisting on his own vindication. In other words, he would rather me think good of them than me think he's right. Even when we're just talking shop, even when he could have easily gotten away with it. He's speaking about another person in that church and he he described this person using the same words that Jesus used when he met Nathaniel in John chapter 1. Behold, he's an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And I thought, I don't know about the other person you're talking about, but mate, I'm looking at someone in whom there is no guile. That's wonderful. It is lovely to see someone who keeps no record of wrongs. Very easy, isn't it, for us to judge people's motives. But love means we don't assume people are operating from a sinister motivation. We give people the benefit of the doubt in a way that doesn't have to be gullible. It doesn't have to be naive. I looked at my colleague, my former colleague, who's often given me the benefit of the doubt, and I thought about others like him, and I thought, switch on. Switch on, Scott. These are things you've got to learn. If you're going to grow as a human, if I'm going to grow as a maturing disciple of Jesus, love keeps no record of wrongs, and it hopes for the best in people, and it perseveres with them. Pretty keen to get on to the, uh, the last section from verse 8 onwards. But um, just that idea there in verse 6 in your Bibles, have a look. That love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. I, I think it has two important things to say to us. Firstly, to note that within us there is a perverse streak of human nature in which we love to see others fall. You ever found that in yourself? You can delight in evil in the doing of it. 
you can also delight in evil in the viewing of it in others. You know, I wonder with this whole Ashley Madison website hacking thing, I, I wonder if it brings this very thing to light. I mean, sure, no good thing comes from adultery. And computer hacking is not a virtue either. But why is there such intrigue about it among those whose email addresses aren't connected to it, the safe ones? And I wonder if it's just because we love the scandal. We love seeing others caught out. We love seeing others fall, especially if it's a sexual scandal. And I wonder whether that's because we delight in the reporting of evil. And perhaps that's because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Or maybe we even intuitively feel like that just gives us a little more leeway, a little more license, a little more rope when it comes to our own sin. But love does not delight in evil, it rejoices in the truth. It's not all gushy, it doesn't contradict moral truths and considerations. It rejoices in truth, especially the truth of the gospel, the good news that we can have life with God because of all that Jesus has done for us. And so in all these various ways, love is more an action directed in the service of others. Now let me say, you find yourself thinking, there's something I need to repent of. There is something I need prayer for down the front afterwards, maybe. If there is forgiveness that needs to be asked, if there is forgiveness that needs to be offered, if there are relationships that need to be restored, there is an opportunity to do that. And that opportunity is called today. Well, finally, uh, thirdly and quickly, love prevails into eternity. Have a look in verse 8. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. But love prevails. So in the very back end of this passage, the Apostle Paul, verses 8 to 13, he returns to the topic of spiritual gifts and he says that those spiritual gifts that the Corinthian Christians prize the most, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, and I guess whatever gifts that we might prize the most, they're going to fail or at least pass away in the very presence of God. And maybe there'll just be no need for them anymore. What we currently know by study and prophecy, reason and revelation, we know truly, but just partially. But when the end of time comes, or completeness, as verse 10 says, that partness will go. You know, uh, in Corinthian times, the mirrors were made out of polished metal. So I guess the reflections they gave you were probably a bit clumsy. You might not see that bit of rocket that got kind of caught in your teeth, you know. And it's not that they gave you an untrue reflection, but a, they just gave a partial reflection, which is what our knowledge of God is like now. You see in the passage, there's a movement from imperfect to perfect, from incomplete to complete, from partial to full. And those gifts that we are likely to prize, those gifts that the Corinthians prize, belong to the era of the partial, the incomplete, the imperfect, the now. And because they will pass away when Jesus returns and we will see him face to face. I mean, that's something to hold on to, isn't it? But as, uh, as they will pass away when he returns, they are not the main game in the meantime. In the meantime, the main game is faith, and hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. And you might ask, why um, is love the greatest of these? Three outstanding and prevailing virtues. 
Some say it's because of the other two, hope and faith, will likewise pass away. Hope looks forward to a future that will become a reality when Jesus returns. So maybe hope will pass away. And you could argue the same about faith, but I think the reason why love prevails into eternity and the reason why love is the greatest of these is because nothing, no single thing approximates the very essence of God more than the idea of love. You and I are hopeful. To be Christian means that we are hopeful. And God is described as faithful and compassionate and merciful and powerful. And though he is also described as loving, preeminently in 1 John chapter 4, it tells us that he's not only loving, but in fact that he is love. Nothing approximates the very essence, the very nature of God more than love. And that prevails into eternity just as God prevails into eternity. And so when you see in verse 8 it says there, love never fails, it must in the first place mean that God's love never fails. God's agape love expressed in the gift of his son that was so striking and different and other that we needed a new word for it. Never fails. And because that love is based on the character and the nature of the lover, not the worthiness of the recipient, We can only love other people. We can only love other people with the way we use our gifts and more generally if we are first recipients of that great love. And if you haven't yet received that great love, that's something we would love to talk to you about this very day. But because his love never fails, it empowers us to love others in the same way. The only power to persevere in love is because somebody has pursued and persevered with us in loving us when Jesus lived among us and then died for us. It's too hard to love like him otherwise. You can't do it on your own. But let me say that when you have experienced that unfailing love of God for us, you you just can't bear a grudge against others, can you? You can't hold on to former faults of others when we've had so much forgiven of ourselves by him. I mean, you can't look for the worst in others when Jesus died to pay for the worst in us. And nor can you insist on the unloving use of your gifts when Jesus did not insist upon all his heavenly entitlements and privileges, but came to earth as one of us to live among us and then to die for us because he so loved us. So, whenever I get gloomy about the state of the world, that's what I try to think of. Truth is, love actually is not all around us at all. But it is in the very essence and nature of God. And it is in the extraordinary expression of the sacrificial death of Jesus for us. And I hope that you are exactly like me and you want to see that reflected in yourself and in our church. And I'm going to pray for us all that we do that right now. Why don't you join me? Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for giving us all spiritual gifts to be used for the sake of the body, the common good, one another. Lord, we've been reminded this morning that actually being loving is more important than being gifted. So help us to use our gifts in love for other people. We've seen this morning that love is not just an emotion or even an affection, but it is an action that's directed in the service of others. So move us to be in the service of others. And we have also seen that love prevails because nothing approximates your very nature more than love. 
And so move our very natures to be better lovers of others. We pray these things for Jesus' glory and for his sake. Amen. Thanks, we're going to finish by singing.